You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 23rd of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme, Turkey prepares to invade Syria again. Former US President Donald Trump loses the fight to hide his tax returns later in the show. Girls like me, I mean, I was just used to watching women being in a position of power when they grew up. But not less importantly, the boys were also used to that fact. Iceland's foreign minister on increasing the representation of women in politics and a roundup of the latest fashion news with Monocle's Natalie Theodosi. All that coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. For the fourth time in the last six years, Turkey appears poised to send ground forces into Syria. This would follow recent airstrikes against Kurdish positions in Syria and Iraq, which followed the recent bombing of a shopping arcade in Istanbul, which Turkey blamed on Kurdish militant organisation the PKK, who have denied all responsibility. I'm joined now by Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda Smith. Um, Hannah, Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is fairly obviously foreshadowing a large-scale intervention into Syria. How serious does he sound? Yeah, well, President Erdogan's way of speaking, it can be, should we say, gnomic. He will never sort of say clearly and and to the point, yes, we're planning another ground offensive in Syria, but certainly the kind of uh, reading between the lines of what he's been saying over the past couple of days, that certainly seems to be the intention. He was saying today that uh, nobody has a right to tell Turkey how to deal with its own uh, security problems, Uh, perhaps a response there to to a statement that came from the US State Department yesterday. Uh, And yesterday, indeed, he said that uh, the operations in Syria and Iraq may not be limited to uh, air attack. So again, you know, very clearly hinting at a ground offensive. It would be the fourth time this happens that uh, Turkish troops have crossed the border from Turkey in Syria since 2016. Um, and really, you know, every time he's done this, it's getting more and more complicated because Syria is getting more and more complicated. This area that we're talking about where Turkey is launching strikes and might perhaps uh, also launch, launch ground operation, uh, clearly what Turkey is aiming at is Kurdish-controlled area. But this is a real kind of jigsaw of territory. You've got skies that are controlled by Russia in parts with the US air cover as well. We've got on the ground areas controlled by Assad, areas controlled by Syrian rebel groups, some of which are allied to Turkey. It's a real complicated situation in there. And I think, you know, for Erdogan, if he is to launch this new ground operation, it's certainly going to be the most complex that he's ever done. Uh, We should be clear, it's not just the recent bombing of Istanbul uh, which concerns him. There have been rocket attacks from inside Syria which have landed in Turkey and have caused fatalities. But to focus, first of all, on that bombing of the shopping arcade in Istanbul, uh, Turkey has blamed the PKK. The PKK have said they had nothing to do with it. Is it unusual, though, for the PKK to deny responsibility? It's it's not. I mean, when you look at the kind of the history of the PKK over the 40 years that it's been around in Turkey and also, you know, very recently in the last 
uptick of violence in 2015, 2016. You know, the PKK does have a record of attacking targets in Western Turkey, particularly in Istanbul and Ankara. The difference, though, is that usually um, they will attack more uh, targets connected with security services. So they'll usually attack, uh, you know, police buses. In one case in 2016 here in Istanbul, uh, there was a large PKK bombing at the Besiktas football ground, but that was aimed very squarely at the police who were policing that match. Um, you know, 42 th- police, I think, killed in that attack and no civilians. So it is quite unusual, although not unheard of, for the PKK to attack entirely civilian targets like the the place that was bombed last Sunday. Well, looking ahead to the operation then, which Erdogan does appear to be foreshadowing, how is Turkish media responding to it? Obviously, there's not a lot of critical voices left in Turkish media, but does there seem to be general enthusiasm for doing this again? There are not a lot of critical voices left, and even the ones that are left are particularly concerned about reporting this these events in any way critically because of a new law that came in last month uh, banning what uh, is termed as fake news. Now, obviously, that has a very wide definition and, and the government has used it already on several occasions, including after the Istanbul bombing, uh, to target people they say are sharing what they call provocations. Now, clearly, this has a really, really chilling effect. As you'd expect, the pro-government media absolutely just repeating what everyone said, very nationalistic response to this, really kind of quiet response from the rest of the media. But I think the the interesting thing is these kind of military operations against uh, against Kurdish targets have always proved really, really useful for Erdogan because it's something that almost everyone in the country gets behind. There's a real kind of long... Uh, you know, historical fault line in this country um, when it comes to the kind of Kurdish issue. And, you know, attacks on PKK targets were something which were kind of across the board very popular. And in the past, you know, in Istanbul, when these operations have been announced, we've seen, you know, posters put up in support of the soldiers, uh, you know, real kind of, you know, organic outpourings of support. We're not seeing it this time. And I do feel that you know, these constant kind of, uh, you know, overseas operations, not just in Syria, also, you know, Turkey getting involved in the Caucasus, in Libya, in all kinds of other places. Turks are facing an economic crisis. You know, there, there is a sense of, you know, why is money being spent on this when we are suffering our own domestic problems? And also, I think people are just tired, this constant sense of threat, you know, this constant sense that Turkey is always at war, either diplomatically or, you know, fully at war with somebody. It's, you know, it's been a long decade for Turks, and I do think it's diminishing returns at this point. Is he betting, nevertheless, that he might have a moment here, given that a couple of potentially restraining powers might not be that bothered this time? The United States, of course, is still waiting for Turkey to ratify Sweden and Finland's entry into NATO, and Russia fairly obviously wants him to win the election next June. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the statement that came out from the US State Department was so carefully worded as to be almost meaningless. I mean, they they talk about, you know, sympathy for deaths in both Syria and Turkey and call for a de-escalation. So, you know, it's very, very clear that the US is in a position here where, you know, reigning in Turkey is kind of the last thing on their minds. Ukraine is their bigger problem. They want Sweden and Finland and NATO and Turkey has to agree in order to say that. So clearly, they're not going to be picking a huge fight with Turkey over this. As you say, Russia has its own interests, although obviously that could also be uh, something that President Putin can uh, leverage against Erdogan as well. I mean, I I think, you know, for Erdogan, 
well, first thing to say, it's very, very difficult to know exactly what is going on inside the palace and what's going on between different kind of power bases within Erdogan's palace because it's such a closed system at this point and, you know, no independent journalists have access to that. But, I mean, clearly, I, I think, you know, for, for parts of the government and for Erdogan himself, you know, this kind of operation could be beneficial. It's certainly, you know, very useful in terms of, you know, distracting away from other problems. You know, certainly as soon as Turkish troops start getting involved, there is a sort of general instinct in Turkey for everyone to sort of rally behind the troops. So I think, you know, it's not outside the bounds of possibility that, you know, he, he's looking at it from that direction. Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Istanbul, thank you for joining us. Uh, you are listening to The Briefing. Here is Monocle's Tom Webb with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. At least seven people have been killed in a shooting at a supermarket in the US state of Virginia. The gunman, who's believed to be the manager of the Walmart store in the town of Chesapeake, opened fire on shoppers before turning the gun on himself. The far-right party of Brazil's outgoing president, Jair Bolsonaro, has challenged some votes in October's election. Bolsonaro's Liberal Party, which narrowly lost the contest to Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, has now asked the Electoral Court to reject certain ballots. The UK's Supreme Court has ruled that the Scottish Government cannot hold an independence referendum without the government's consent. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has said that she wants to hold a referendum in October of next year. And Canada will face Belgium in the World Cup later today. The North American side has previously only featured at the 1986 tournament in Mexico. That appearance saw them lose at the group stages to France, Hungary and the then Soviet Union. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Tom. This is The Briefing on Monocle 24. The convention whereby presidents of the United States release their tax returns dates back half a century or so to noted benchmark of probity Richard M. Nixon. The streak was broken by President Donald Trump, who declined for scarcely imaginable reasons to release his tax returns. The US Supreme Court now appears to have removed that choice from him. It has cleared the way for his records to be delivered to the House of Representatives Ways and Means Committee, which is presently controlled by Trump's Democratic opposition. Donald Trump, as usual, denies everything. Lou Lukens is a former US diplomat, now a senior partner at Signum Global. Uh, Lou, thank you for joining us. Uh, we don't know what's in the tax returns yet, obviously, but potentially, could this be a big deal? Well, it could potentially. And remember that Donald Trump is also under investigation in the state of New York for tax fraud and um, having his tax returns released publicly, which they undoubtedly will be. I mean, they will be released to the congressional committee within the next couple of days, I imagine. Uh, but it is unimaginable that they won't be somehow leaked to the public shortly after. So everyone will get a good look at Donald Trump's financial games that he's played over the last many years. And um, that will feed into the criminal investigations and civil investigations happening in New York right now. Uh, does the House Ways and Means Committee need to be quick? Because, of course, there will be a new Congress sworn in in January, which will be controlled by the Republican Party. Yes, they, they need to be very quick. They have basically five weeks left to do their work, um, at which point, as you noted, the Republicans will take over and they will completely shut down, I imagine, any further investigation into Trump's tax um, situation.
I mean, do we know, as you correctly point out, they will doubtless be leaked, they haven't yet, but do we know broadly what people will be looking for? If we if we draw some cues from what we've learned from the state of New York's investigation, will it be Trump's recurrent habit of uh, telling the public things about his wealth rather different to what he tells um, the tax people? So there are a couple things to look out for. One is that I think that he has a, a reputation and maybe a history of of overinflating the the worth of his properties and his the value of his properties um, to obtain loans, but then underreporting the value to pay when it comes to paying taxes. And so people will be looking for those discrepancies. I think they will also be looking very closely for any clues in, into how much money flowed from foreign governments into his pockets during his presidency. Right, this is a key issue, and foreign governments spent a lot of money at Trump properties. Um, in, in, in the United States, in Washington, especially during the presidency. And I think there'll be a lot of interest into what what countries did that and did they return any, did they gain any sort of benefit um, in return for that? Does it necessarily tell us anything, though, that Donald Trump has fought so hard against this? Because it, it, it's his it's his standard operating procedure, right? He fights hard against everything. He defies, he deflects, refuses to cooperate, threatens retaliation. It's just what he always does. It is, uh, but but he's at the end of the road now. I mean, there's nowhere for him to appeal this decision at this point. The Supreme Court has decided there's no higher authority in the United States that he can appeal to. So um, his tax returns will be released. The fact that he has fought so hard for so many years to avoid releasing them, you know, has to raise the, 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 the potential that there is incriminating evidence in there that will not reflect well on him. And I don't think anyone will be surprised if that's the case. I mean, at this point in Donald Trump's political adventure, to, to ask this question is to answer it. But even if there is some thoroughly disgraceful revelation in these tax returns, which I think we have to acknowledge is not beyond the realms of possibility, will it really change anything? Will it, will it prize off a single one of his voters? Uh, will it dissuade a single one of his supporters in politics or in the conservative media? Well, in some ways, no, right? His his core supporters will buy into his line that this is a political witch hunt, that it always has been, and that's why he's fought against it. Um, that said, a, a combination of factors, including this and the other investigations into Mar-a-Lago and the, the documents that he kept there, and also the fact that his candidates did not do very well in the midterm elections a couple of weeks ago, have all created space for other Republicans to position themselves as the next heirs and leaders of the party. Whereas I think, you know, four or five months ago, it was sort of assumed that Donald Trump would run again. He would, you know, have a very strong chance of winning the Republican nomination. And I think that position of his is weakened now. Republican donors are walking away from him. Rupert Murdoch and his media empire have have basically washed their hands of Donald Trump. And, and I think depending on what's in his tax returns, that will give that sort of the Republican elite and donor class yet another excuse to to turn their backs on him. So is, is this the idea then uh, that there is a, a cohort of Republican politicians, Republican donors, Republican media cheerleaders, which have for some while now been wanting an opportunity to desert Donald Trump? Yes, absolutely. Uh, not, maybe, I mean, the media to a certain extent, but definitely the donor class and sort of the old sort of more traditional you know, low tax pro-business Republicans that, that have struggled, I think, to find their place in Trump land. 
and they they now have an opportunity to walk away from him. Now, he still has considerable hold over a core base of the party, so it's not going to be a cakewalk for them to basically show him out the door. Um, and he has, as we know, announced that he's running again, and he's the only candidate who's actually launched an official bid. Uh, but there are other sort of you know people positioning themselves, people like the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, who are, are very attractive candidates to to more sort of old school Republicans. Um, and 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 so the tax re- release, tax return release, will be just another thing that they can use as, a, as an excuse to not back Trump again. And just finally, to the, the man at the centre of this, how do you imagine Trump spinning the politics of this? Because, again, to refer to his standing operating procedure, he will call it a deep state plot to undermine him and thwart the popular will, etc. But is that really going to stick when what he's referring to is his own tax returns, which he submitted himself? Yeah, and, and yes, exactly. But beyond that, um, it's, it's in some ways his Supreme Court, right? I mean, three he nominated three justices to the Supreme Court, I, I'm sure. And in many cases, they have um, sort of, you know, supported him in, in decisions. And I think he will see this as um, as as treason by people that he put on the Supreme Court voting in favor of having his tax returns released. And, and I'm sure it infuriates him, um, but it makes it harder for him to say this is a deep state plot because in many ways, this is a very conservative Supreme Court and half of the Supreme, half of the conservative justices were appointed by him. Lou Lukens, thank you as always for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. This is The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Iceland has historically been more amenable to women in politics than most places. Icelandic women, at least women over the age of 40, got the vote in 1915, their younger sisters in 1920. In 1980, Iceland became the first country to democratically choose a female head of state. In Iceland's current parliament, 30 of its 63 seats are held by women, including those of the Prime Minister and our next guest, Iceland's Foreign Minister, Thordis Kolbrun. Rekford Gilfordotter. She spoke to me for the current episode of Monocle 24's The Foreign Desk. I began by asking how Iceland has managed to accomplish better female representation than most countries. It's many things. No one magical solution or magical puzzle, but I would argue that it may be because the women of Iceland always approach their demands from equality, from a position of strength and self-confidence. The road has been long and it wasn't easy and it hasn't been easy and I'm sure it hasn't been as easy as it might look. But there were two very important characteristics of struggle at the beginning that may not have been in place in many other societies. So one was that women were able to form a very strong alliance across the political spectrum and across all social divides that mounted a strong campaign for changes at all levels of society. And the activism resulted in the country's largest political rally, the Women's Day Off in 1975. I'm sure you've seen some pictures of that day. And that had, without a doubt, a deciding influence on the election of the first woman president in Iceland five years later, in 1980. 
and the decision of the Women Alliance to run in the municipal election in 1982 and then in parliament election in 1983. So both of these were important because the women were not asking for permission. They were not asking the men to be allowed to join the table. Rather, they were establishing their rights through their own strength. And through this strength, two things happened. First, we got inspiring role models. My grandmother was one of them, founding member of the Women's Alliance, feminist political party. And Vigdís Finnbogadóttir became the world's first woman to be democratically elected as president in the year 1980. So I would argue that role models are extremely important. And this means that girls like me, I mean, I was just used to watching women being in a position of power when they grew up. Uh, but not less importantly, the boys were also used to that fact, to seeing powerful and respected women in television, for example. And this means that later in life, strong men are comfortable working with and working for women. And then second, having more women entering political changes, a political agenda, paving the way for gender equality issues become, to become political issues. And in my view, the single most important thing we have done in Iceland may have been the universal childcare. We have kindergarten for everyone, available and accessible for all children. And this has been extremely empowering for women who could you know, educate themselves, like we can in many other European countries, but then have kids and continue joining the workforce and the labor market on their own terms. So it's both the fact that it's accessible and women are capable, but it also has a huge effect on the mindset. So it is looked as a natural thing that both men and women enter the labor force and a woman doesn't have to choose whether she's going to you know, have a family or be strong in the workforce. You mentioned earlier that the representation of women in Icelandic politics has had a, well, it's had an effect on policy in creating those policies and those circumstances which make it easier for women to participate in politics and other careers as well. But do you think it makes any difference to the way that politics is conducted if there's more women involved? I mean, I'm sure you've heard this before, that there is this rather cliched conventional wisdom at large that if more women are involved in politics, then it's less confrontational, it's less vicious, it's less nasty. Do you subscribe to that idea? I would argue that in general, when you have more diversified group of people in a decision making, you would get a better outcome. I would argue that women in general, they approach certain things in a different manner. And then if that's something natural or because of the society, I wouldn't trust myself to draw the line there. And I think nobody can, and I'm certainly not the person to do so. But I would argue that women definitely approach some issues in a different manner. But when we, we now have a much more diverse set of people with the inclusion of women leaders being the most obvious, and one can have a hope that this change will give humanity a better chance of avoiding future catastrophes. And I think many of us have the feeling that when it comes to terrible decisions, like, for example, launching a very senseless and brutal war, women's leader would be less likely to do so. And it seems unthinkable to me that any woman leader would encourage the sort of war of destruction only for the purpose of self-glorification that Putin has led his country into. But of course, that would apply to any civilized person, regardless of gender. But the real problem is that even women have a very good chance of getting into powerful position in some countries, we still have many countries, even countries that Iceland considers like-minded when it comes to fundamental values, 
where women are still very marginalized and have no real chance to influence domestic politics unless they play uh, very junior partners to male politicians. That was Iceland's Foreign Minister Thordis Kolbrun Rekvud Gilfordotte. You can hear the rest of that interview and the rest of that episode of The Foreign Desk in which we celebrated International Men's Day by asking why there aren't more women in politics and how might more might be encouraged, rather. You can find it on our website or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. This is The Briefing on Monocle 24. Sit down with a host of inspiring designers and architects featured in Monocle's November issue. They share their thoughts on bright ideas, on everything from the future of the office to community-built public design. It's being really clear that we can create the kind of infrastructure to make people feel like, I want to stay here, I want to stay invested here. In the affairs pages, we visit the people and places weaning Europe off fossil fuels, from a booming solar industry in Morocco to an off-grid village in Germany. Elsewhere, it's lights, camera, action in Mexico, where the global streaming wars are heating up and full steam ahead at the world's largest rail fair in Berlin. Order your copy of Monocle's November issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Finally, on today's programme, we are going to get a roundup of news from the catwalk with our fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Uh, Natalie, first of all, uh, the World Cup, as everybody is now painfully aware, is on. And because it's the World Cup, it does have, it turns out, a fashion aspect as well. And we're not just talking about the kits. Exactly. I think... You would probably have a lot more fun talking about the kids, but we can talk a little bit about what Louis Vuitton and brands like Herno have been doing, trying to get into some of the action of football and use, I think they're using the momentum and the, the platform that football has to offer to create really great marketing opportunities, to be honest. I mean, it, it is curious, the players they light upon. In, in particular, there's Louis Vuitton campaigning with Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, obviously, they are both superstars. They are both fantastic footballers. But one of them, you could say, very much looks like a fashion model, while the other one very much does not. So when Louis Vuitton associate with... Lionel Messi, who is a fairly unremarkable appearing individual, what are they hoping to communicate? I think it was the combination of the of two football superstars mm. coming together and in the picture they're playing a game of chess. So it was bringing them together, dressing them up in really smart Louis Vuitton suits. Obviously the chessboard is in a very luxurious Louis Vuitton monogram case and... Uh, I think the, the, the that image has gone viral ever since it was published and really drew attention to Louis Vuitton. I think it just shows that they are off the moment, they are taking part in the action of the World Cup and, and football and bringing this to really distinct personalities together. And they've been doing it uh, with their advertising for... Uh, a really long time. I mean, one of my favorite ads of Louis Vuitton has uh, was when they got uh, my Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, so they they always like to get personalities from outside fashion uh, and bring them into their very luxurious world of monogram cases and and suits. <laughs> <laughs> um, we we should look a bit about the internal politics of one extremely well known fashion house. Uh, this is Gucci, which will shortly be advertising for a new creative director. 
It looks like uh, Alessandro Michele, the car- current creative director, is uh, on his way out. That's what a lot of media sources are saying. And it's it's really interesting. I actually remember breaking uh, the news that uh, he was appointed. He was replacing um, Frida Giannini seven years ago, who was a lot more of a traditional Italian designer. And he came in, he was... N- a relatively unknown designer who was just part of the bigger Gucci design team. And then he just changed everything. Uh, you know, he added fur on loafers. Uh, he brightened everything up, mixed patterns, created these crazy magpie looks that, however, took everyone by surprise and, and turned Gucci into this billion dollar brand one of caring's highest earning brands so he's had an amazing trajectory yet it's interesting that this kind of rumors have even impacted the markets and a lot of the financial analysts following caring and con- consequently gucci actually said that it's really good news mm. That in the short term, there might be a little bit of a wobble, they called it, on the share price. But because what he's been doing is a lot of the same, people have bought that into that aesthetic and are now bored of it. It might be good uh, for caring and the Gucci bottom line uh, to have a renewal. On the subject of wobbling share prices, uh, luxury brands obviously regard the approach of economic turbulence with a certain amount of nervousness, and understandably so. How big a thing is it that Raf Simmons has closed his label? I think it shows this sort of turbulence that uh, luxury is bound to face. We've been we've been speaking a lot about uh, all these luxury houses. Uh, still seeing their revenues increase and uh, consumers having enormous appetite despite the, the the current state of the economy, the war. But it looks like now as we move into the recession next year, the forecast is not going to be as bright for luxury brands, let alone independent designers. And even someone like Graf Simmons, he's had his label since uh, 1995, he had big uh, roles in in brands like Jill Sander, Dior, Calvin Klein. He's now co-creative director of Prada, but even he couldn't sort of sustain his independent label. And when he announced that he's closing it, there was a lot, especially uh, the fashion crowd that has been following him and collecting his clothes for years and years. Uh, there was a lot of uh, sadness and nostalgia about that. So I think sadly we will be seeing some of these independent businesses struggle a lot more uh, in the coming year. Uh, Just finally and just quickly, at least one uh, brand has come up with a way where they can perhaps, I mean, I don't know, combine their business with another business. Um, Louis Vuitton will give people the opportunity to spend large amounts of money on Louis Vuitton products without actually having to leave the hotel. Exactly. So LVMH, the, the parent company of Louis Vuitton, just said that they are uh, turning their headquarters, where they, their offices used to be, into a hotel and the biggest Louis Vuitton store that, in the world. And there's already quite a few really large ones, so I can only imagine <laughs> how big this one is going to be. And yeah, it's uh, I think... Uh, a new revenue stream for these companies to go into hospitality and bring shopping as well as food and drink and uh, and hotels all together. 
uh, and uh, Dior has been doing it as well, a sister company to Louis Vuitton, uh, with this very large flagship store in Paris, on Avenue Montaigne, which also has a suite, which I was really lucky to visit a few weeks ago, uh, that's open only to private customers, the the VIP customers, and it costs around 20,000 euros a night to stay there, but you can stay and you can go shopping uh, at midnight in the store by yourself. So there's a lot of that um, going on, I think, in, in luxury brands and uh, everyone will be trying to get into hospitality uh, in the coming year. Natalie Theodosi, thank you for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing returns tomorrow at the same time. I'll be back with The Daily at 1800 UK time later today. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 